When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Brooklyn hipster losers. You are in the Bell House, and this is a very, very special live Trumpcast. Get your drinks, get your seats, because we are about to get started. Tonight, your special guest is Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, terrible, terrible person. This show's called The Trump you should have on Melania. You should have on Melania. Unfortunately, we can't find her. We know she's in the White House somewhere. It's a big house. It's a big house. Lots of rooms. So let's get started. Get in your seats and get ready because this is going to be huge. No collusion, Bellhouse. No collusion. I barely know Michael Cohen. I maybe met him once or twice. I am going to fire Mr. Magoo, Jeff Sessions. Can't stand that little garden gnome. Don't believe anything Stormy Daniel says, unless she says I'm a great lover. That part's true. So this is the point at which we say, hello and welcome to Trumpcast. The show about the man whose advisors are telling him to act innocent. <laughs> Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, here with Virginia Heffernan Hi. and Jamel Bowie. Virginia and I have to exercise the bell house. We were here on election night. Remember that? We are. There's a lot of slants of war, fog of war coming back because we were really going to celebrate. We were going to celebrate the end of Trumpcast, and then we celebrated. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah, I wasn't and here we to... are. But thank you for keeping us company. <laughs> exactly. And I want to say that uh, we are also uh, Facebook live streaming this event. So hello to everyone on Facebook. Um, a kind Yay, word Facebook. for a kind word for Facebook. Um, and um, we are um, we have a we have a packed show, and uh, we have a lot of exciting elements. But I'm going to make sure that everyone is out of here in time to watch the final episode of The Americans, <laughs> 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 because the Weisberg brothers are producing a lot of stress-oriented entertainment. <laughs> and tonight is the is the conclusion. We also have. Something I'm really excited about. Who has heard the improv we've been doing on Trumpcast? <laughs> so this is a really great thing that, that Steve Waltine and Kate James and Asher Perlman have been doing on the show. Uh, Steve and Asher uh, are also writers for The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, and they're going to be doing live improv tonight. If you have any doubts that what you have been hearing on the show is improv, you are now going to see the evidence because they're going to be sitting here, the audience, and after um, each segment, we're doing three segments, they're going to come out and stand right in front of us and do some improv, riffing off what we've been talking about. It sounds weird. It's great. <laughs> 
moving right along. You've seen him on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC again, CNN again. Sometimes but, your dreams. Yes, at night. but for some of us. <laughs> but probably not so much on Fox. Please join me in welcoming Michael Avenatti. Michael, hi. <laughs> <laughs> How Virginia's a fan. It's great to see Virginia's you. Howdy. I mean, Michael. Um, <laughs> cheers. cheers. <laughs> Michael, I have to say you're a very good sport because when I wrote a story about you in Slate a couple of weeks ago with the uh, headline, The Brilliant Egomaniac Who Could Bring Down <laughs> Donald Trump, you retweeted it. You retweeted it. You did comment. I might have chosen a different headline, but you're a total, totally good sport about it. And uh, we're, we're I, I thought that was an exceptional article, by the way. I did. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think you're an exceptional lawyer. Um, and um, in fact, the, the point of that piece was that something that people didn't really notice changed when Stormy Daniels went from having one of the worst lawyers in America to one of the best lawyers in America. Well, thank Unnoticed you. at the time. Thank um, you. Thank you. Um, but I wanted to just get to start by asking you about the news. You, you were in court again today, and when you came out, you made references you have before to tapes, tape recordings that Michael Cohn made of, well, I don't know exactly. What's on these tapes, and why are you so excited about them? Well, let me tell you, uh, from my perspective, uh, the highlights of today's events uh, before Judge Wood. Uh, first of all, we learned that there have been uh, 13 images of 13 different cell phones that have been turned over that were seized by the FBI in connection with the raids. Uh, I don't know about you, but... I don't have 13 cell phones. <laughs> um, that, Wasn't that's he a, supposed to use burners? Yeah. yeah. That, that's a lot of cell phones, and I don't know why he would have kept his old cell phones around, but I sure as hell am pretty happy that he did. <laughs> uh, there's two additional Blackberries that are being uh, imaged or um, attempted to be um, forensically imaged by uh, individuals at Quantico down in Virginia with the FBI, so that would be 15 uh, cell phones. And then the other disclosure today was that there were 19 different types of computer media devices, hard drives, computers, thumb drives, and the like that were seized in the raids. Again, that's a very big number and uh, increases the pucker factor, I think, significantly <laughs> for, uh, for individuals involved. Um, you know, who knew that Michael Cohen could go on that reality hoarder show um, <laughs> at, at any given time, right? Uh, and, and then, of course, we get to the disclosure of the tapes. And the tapes, uh, the recordings were an issue that we had raised because I'd gotten an inquiry last week from a reporter asking me to comment on the content of one of these recordings. Uh, and of course, we immediately brought it to the attention of the court and asked that the court make an inquiry about why Michael Cohen appeared to be selectively leaking recordings. So we brought that to the attention of the court. And lo and behold, Mr. Ryan, his attorney, was kind enough. He didn't have to do this, but God bless him for doing it today. He was kind enough to confirm that, in fact, there are audio recordings and that he has them and they're under, quote, 
um, lock and key, we've since found out that at least one of these recordings is a recording between Mr. Cohen and Mr. Trump. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, the, the, I mean, it's a bad day when you find out that your attorney has a propensity to record conversations with people and has 13 cell phones. But I it's mean, a Trump real, could have been recording them too. Well, who, who knows? Maybe they were both recording him. But it, it's a really bad day when you find out that you're the president of the United States and your attorney may have recordings of you. So yeah. uh, this is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. And uh, I think these recordings are going to be incredibly damaging to Mr. Cohen and the president. You've said that, I implying at least that based on things you know that we don't know and that maybe you can't tell us yet, that you don't think Donald Trump will serve out his term. That's correct. I, can, did, I do can not. Can you say a little more about why you think that? Well, provided that Michael Cohen uh, proceeds to trade up or attempt to roll over on the president, and I think that he will, I think that the president is going to be faced with an avalanche of evidence relating to prior misdeeds um, and prior activities with Michael Cohen. Um, over a 10 or 12 year time period. And I don't believe that he's going to have any chance other than, or um, any choice I should say, other than to resign the presidency um, during this term. I have my doubts as to whether he'll ultimately be impeached because of the makeup of Congress. But I think the evidence in this case is going to be overwhelming as it unfolds. But you're talking about pre-presidential wrongdoing. And I know you've spoken to at least a couple of other women we haven't heard about who, who have NDAs with Trump or with Michael Cohen. You've been trying to get them to come forward. What's, what's involved? Are we going to hear from more people who Trump paid hush money to and bought off? Well, there were, there were, there's been multiple women that have uh, approached me in my office about representing them. There's two of them that have had uh, NDAs in the past. One of them has uh, decided not to come forward in light of the incredible press scrutiny and um, efforts by the right to delve into individuals that attempt to cross them into their personal lives, uh, et cetera. Uh, the other woman we're continuing to communicate with and we're hopeful that she's gonna come forward uh, and disclose what she knows. But, you know, this is much bigger than sex. I mean, this isn't about sex. It's not about who he was sleeping with or not sleeping with. It really is about the cover-up. It's about these payments through essential consultants. It's about money laundering and wire fraud and what he knew and when he knew it, uh, lying on Air Force One and the like. That's, what, you, that's what this is about. I'm going to ask you one more question before I let these guys get in, and mm -hmm. this is about sex. What do you think about the theory that yeah. Sherry Burchard... Uh, had Shira. a boy. Uh, sorry, I'm, I was going <laughs> to pronounce her name. Um, had a boyfriend who impregnated her, and his name wasn't Elliot Brody. Uh, I think that there are a number of questions relating to that alleged relationship and a payment, and I don't think they have yet to be answered. Uh, and I certainly have some considerable doubt in my mind as to the story that's been told uh, relating to that. I'll leave it at that. We'll take considerable doubt. <laughs> Virginia, your witness. So, <laughs> uh, hold, hold on. Let it's me get hardly a, a cross-examination. Let, let me get a drink first. Yeah. Right. Um, no, it's going to be pretty easy. So Judge <laughs> Kimball Wood today had other things to say to you. Um, what, what was this conversation about um, cool it on the TV stuff and we'll let you be a like do you want to be a tv star or a lawyer did she really ask you that <laughs> well i want to be a lawyer for the truth that's what i want to be and why is that do you see yeah i want the applause <laughs> yeah. um 
the jury is going crazy for this. Um, do you, but, but she did ask you to sort of pick a lane, right? Like she said something about going on TV versus um, getting full access to the discovery here as a, as a as an attorney well we don't need full access to the discovery in this particular case there's other ways that we can go about doing that and i think the judge's point was look if you're going to come into the case formally then you're going to have to play by the rules that are in place relating to trial publicity and the like yeah which was something that we anticipated and we were prepared to do and quite honestly michael cohen and his counsel i think they made a critical mistake by opposing our efforts to come into the case because they should have welcomed us into the case uh, so that she could act somewhat as a check or a balance on statements that we would make um, to the public and information that we would provide to the public. I think that was a mistake on their part. So ultimately what we've decided in the short term is we're going to keep doing what we've done. We're going to keep coming forward with evidence and facts for the American people, for people just like this. And we're going to we're going to let you all decide whether uh, what happens and whether you want the information disclosed to you or not, or whether you want it hidden from you. And I firmly believe that you want the information so you can make your own determinations about whether people are lying or covering up or, or what it's all about. <laughs> so, you know, to that degree, we've engaged in a certain degree of legal populism. I know it's unconventional. I know it makes a lot of people that are really uptight and button-down lawyers, you know, I, I know they don't like it. I know they've never seen it before, but they better get used <laughs> to it because we're not going away. Very nice. Jamel, your <laughs> witness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I have like a, a meta question for you, which is from looking from the outside in, it, it, I'm a little surprised at how incompetent the uh, the Trump team seems. <laughs> and and I'm wondering if you are at all surprised or shocked or or even even taken aback professionally um, <laughs> by the fact that these don't seem to be the brightest people in the world. You know, you are spot on. Let me, let me tell you. <laughs> and, and when I say spot on, I mean spot on. Um, so so let, me, let me tell you, people ask me all the time, they say, you know, when you got involved in this, you know, what, what, what did you think or what has surprised you the most about the last 12 weeks? Um, and I will tell you that without a doubt, the single thing that has surprised me the most is the complete sheer incompetence of some of the lawyers on the other side, uh, starting with Michael Cohen, right? I mean, look, th this is a president that sold the American people on himself uh, being a billionaire, uh, that he could negotiate the biggest, baddest contracts with China and the like, that he would surround himself and had surround himself with the best and the brightest, that he was going to bring them to Washington, and that these were going to be the people that were going to assist him in bringing the American people to the promised land. Well, guess what? I got news for you. These people make the Watergate burglars look competent, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wouldn't hire Michael Cohen to carry this beer across the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th this guy, his complete sheer incompetence, forget about as an attorney, just as any type of professional, is never, <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, it, it, literally, this NDA is the biggest piece of garbage I've seen in my legal career. If I had an attorney that worked for me that drafted that, I'd fire him on the spot, no questions asked. The guy's recording conversations, he's keeping old cell phones. I mean, his, his, legal, uh, his, his legal acumen is pathetic, quite honestly. So the single biggest thing that has surprised me, without a doubt, is exactly what you said. You put your finger on it, and that is the incompetence of 
the people that this president surrounded himself with prior to to getting to office. You know, the one thing I'll say is this. I've had occasion to represent people from all kinds of walks of life over the course of my 18-year career. And when I've represented individuals that have had a lot of money later in life, usually one of two things is true. In fact, one of two things is always true. Either they're incredibly intelligent, and that's how they earn their living and earn their wealth, and that's how they keep it, or they really weren't that smart, and they inherited it, or they lucked into it, but they surrounded themselves at some point in their lives with people that are really competent, advisors, accountants, attorneys, and the like. One of two th those two things is always true <laughs> when you run into people, with one exception. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this happens to be the exception. I mean, this is a guy mm. who... It you know isn't that bright as it relates to a lot of these things clearly and B has surrounded himself with a bunch of morons. <laughs> I mean I hate I I hate pushing back on anything you say, Michael. But no, <laughs> there is so another. So, so don't do it. <laughs> there is another brilliant lawyer who once showed down with Trump and his team, and that's Hillary Clinton, and she lost. Um, so we've been saying for a long time that they're incompetent, they're malevolence tempered by incompetence, but somehow they win. Sometimes. What do you think they're doing right? What's Giuliani doing right? What is Giuliani doing? I mean, there's, you know, and how is it, how is it compelling to certain, to some viewers? At yeah, least? You know, look, I don't know what this guy is doing. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a complete shit show every time that he appears on television. I mean, look, let's just call it what it is. It's a shit show. Every time he goes on Fox or Friends or otherwise, it's an absolute disaster for the president. He makes things worse. I don't know how he still has that job. I mean, there's a lot of attorneys in America. In fact, there's far too many, I might add. I think everybody here would agree with that. But the fact that the, the, fact that the President of the United States finds this guy, this is the best guy that he can find to go on television to represent him in connection with a case of this importance and to basically deliver his message to the American people, I mean, I, I think that's pretty pathetic if that's what it's come to. Um is Stormy Daniels being restrained by an NDA in any way at this point? I mean, how, what's victory for you? How do you win mm. this case? I mean, I understand you've taken on a larger cause here, which people in this room greatly identify with. But legally speaking, she's going to tell us her story after you win the case? I mean, she's already told us, right? Well, there's a lot of things that haven't been told, but let me address that. There's really four things that we want at this point, okay? One, we want the NDA invalidated on the grounds that we have um, asked that it be invalidated on, and that includes that it was a violation of campaign finance law and against public policy when it was entered into by uh, Mr. Cohen and when it was proposed to be entered into by Mr. Trump. So that's number one. We want the NDA invalidated. Number two, we want the defamation action. We want to succeed on that as it relates to Mr. Cohen, and we want some sort of damages um, acknowledging that. Same thing as it relates to the defamation against Mr. Trump. And then the fourth issue or the fourth item that we want, which I think is a bigger one, but is um, equally if not more important, and that is that we want full disclosure of what happened relating to this bank account that was established, relating to the establishment of Essential Consultants LLC, relating to the receipt of monies from foreign interest and others as it relates to Mr. Cohen's attempts to sell the access to the presidency. And we want to know where that money went. And we want everyone here and across America to know. And again, people can make their own determinations. If there's nothing nefarious about what went on here, disclose the information and everybody will move on. And I think everyone in this room knows there's a hell of a lot of things that were nefarious about what went on here. And that's why there's been such a cover-up as it relates to hiding it. So if uh, you win on the NDA, 
are you still Stormy Daniels' lawyer? And are you still our lawyer? I mean, the last part of it mm. doesn't necessarily relate to Stormy Daniels, right? Well, You'd I, win that case, and then you still have standing to pursue this case that you just outlined for disclosure. Well, look, the, mm-hmm. here's the way that I see it. If, if I do right by my client, Stormy Daniels, then I think that I'm naturally going to do right by a lot of people in this room and a lot of people that are counting on me as it relates to um, bringing truth and, and disclosure. And so that's what I'm going to continue to do. That's what I have done for 10 or 11 weeks now. And we're going to continue the fight. When you say you're working for the, for, uh, the American people, I, it, it leads me to the question I most wanted to hear you answer. I don't know that you can. But how are you in touch with the Justice Department or Robert Mueller? Yeah, I'm not at liberty to to discuss (laughs) um, exactly, you know, who we communicate with. But let me just say this. Um, We have an exceptional relationship with uh, government investigators, with the fine attorneys of the Southern District of New York. There was this nonsense Wall Street Journal article that was completely fabricated about the fact that somehow we were delaying the investigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was absolutely laughable. Um, we, we have constant and consistent communication with these folks. We're doing everything in our power to assist them in their job because we think it's very important. Michael, I think uh, I can speak for Trumpcast in saying more power to you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Avenatti. Thank you. Do you want to stay for the improv? Five sure, minutes. why not? All right. All right. Uh, so I'm going to welcome Kate, Asher, and Steve to the stage. Welcome to Populist Law 101. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people come into this class and think there are things to learn, things to study, things to regurgitate. Nope. (laughs) It's all about you, how you are perceived out there, how they perceive you, and about how you feel about them perceiving you while you are perceived. Yes. Uh, what What about torts? Do we need to memorize those, precedents, any of that stuff? Uh, the only precedent we have in this class is what are you wearing, does it look good on camera, and what do they think about what you're wearing, and what are you thinking about what you're wearing while they're thinking, that looks nice on camera. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I'm sorry, it just, it seems like you're creating a world in which, like, the hottest lawyer wins. Welcome. <laughs> yes. Okay, but I feel like in this hypothetical world, I mean, wouldn't all lawyers have to have really convenient last names that rhyme with a bunch of super salacious stuff? Like, body, naughty, haughty. <laughs> this is where you take the opportunity to sell what you have to these people. Tell me your name. Zinkerin. <laughs> My name is Dave Bugley. Okay, okay, Dave, he ain't fugly. That's just coming up the top of my head. Zickerman, we have to work with. We have a semester, I know we can get there. I know we can get there. Any other questions before we move on? It just seems like what's the point of studying anything if it's just all about how we're gonna be perceived? We graduated. We did wow. it. We graduated. <laughs> Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For our segment two, we're going to talk about Spygate. And uh, for those of you who may be wondering what Spygate is, you've heard the phrase from from the president. Um, Spygate is his description of what we know about an FBI informant being sent to interview, have conversations with a couple of people on his campaign to try to figure out if the Russians were infiltrating it and were spying on him. Um, The FBI does this to protect campaigns from foreign infiltration. But according to Donald Trump, um, this was the Obama administration sending the FBI to spy on him to to elect Hillary Clinton. And this is um, actually unusual in my experience in that even on Fox News, they have been distancing themselves from this theory. And I'm not just talking about Shepard Smith, um, but even Judge Napolitano. I don't think he's a real judge either. Um, uh, has said no. Let's let's not let's not uh, attack attack law enforcement law enforcement over this. And uh, when Rudy Giuliani was asked about it at the weekend shows, he had one of these candid moments, or possibly a senior moment, um, <laughs> when he said, "Oh, that's that's for the public, or that's for that's for publicity." Um, but Donald Trump is sticking with this. He was Spygate, Spygate at the, this horrifying rally in Nashville la- last night. Virginia, do you think this is working? Do you think this will work for Donald Trump in so far as it can rally his base? To, I doubt it persuades anybody, but is this an effective political tactic for him? I mean, they're, they can, the glorious nerds at Lawfare, uh, Ben Wittes' show for, uh, at the Brookings Institute, it taught, were parsing this as yet another evidence that the world is in a catastrophic state, that the president is um, calling into question the Justice Department and and its procedures and demanding that they out a confidential human source in the form of this this FBI source, who was something less than an informant even. Um, And, uh, you know, they called it an emergency, and then it was walked back a bit, I think, in the days after on Fox and by Giuliani. At the same time, Giuliani... Andrea Mitchell, I think, said that, what, a year ago, Trump had told her that he was, that he said a lot of the things he said just to help discredit the the, the Russia investigation, something along, along those lines. And Giuliani has now come, like, been very clear that he really is just playing, cheating out for the cameras and saying anything that comes in, into his mind to win hearts and minds of people in the hopes of obviating impeachment. So I think this is part of the wall of words um, it's like a Phil Spector wall of sound, you know, it's like, it's like noise or whatever. What's that thing that space or whatever they play at dead shows. It's just like, um, it's just, there's, it's a lot of dry ice and sound and fury. And I think we make a mistake to the extent that we parse it. We certainly make a mistake. Um, you know, when we believe that everything he says is grounded in some actual strategy, much less the truth. Um, you know, he, he, he actually, who did he confide in that sp- he named it Spygate in order, because it had sounded nefarious or sinister or something. Um, I mean, the calculations are so close to the surface now. I mean, there's, there's no suggestion that he's innocent anymore. I mean, their defense is just, 
is, is explicitly to create chaos. And I think this is an example of that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I, can, I, can I first just make a quick uh, nomenclature point? So gate as a suffix typically indicates a scandal that actually has like weight to it, right? Like Watergate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I can't think Deflate of any others. Gate. Deflate gate. Gamergate. Gamergate. Gamer very powerful. <laughs> Um, I think I think as people talking about it, we should call this Spygazi, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Gazi is the uh, suffix for the bullshit scandals. Um, I think we this, may get an this improv about those, this, right? But all right, yeah, yeah Spygazi. Uh, no, so. I, I agree that this is this doesn't represent any particular strategy. It really is one of the president's sort of um, uh, outbursts, uh, trying to to muddle the issue. Um, I that said, I do think there's a chance it could work in the sense that there's not really much of a counterweight that exists in terms of um, uh, opposition mess- messaging. The press talks about this, focuses on it. Um, uh, tries to debunk it, but there's lots going on. Um, there's lots for the press to talk about. So it's not sort of like a, a, a drumbeat from the press. And Democrats um, are mostly talking about, you know, healthcare, taxes, p- policy. And so the president does kind of have this free space to sort of discredit or make these wild accusations um, with the hopes that only people, with the hopes that. Uh, the only people who are pushing against him are the occasional journalist, um, the occasional Times piece. And I think over the long run, or even over the, the medium run, that can end up creating a situation where for you know Joe Public, this is just kind of, who knows what's going on? Who knows what this is about? Maybe it is just a witch hunt. Maybe it is um, just sort of overstepped by the FBI. I'm going to put it out of my mind and chalk it up to partisan infighting. Are you experiencing, as I am, a little of strange bedfellow cognitive dissonance? So the F, so the reflexive defenders of the FBI are now the Democrats and liberals. And when something, a uh, practice comes up like having secret informants, which is something you know the ACLU liberals like me used to get very upset about when they were spying on anti-war organizations and the SDS and Black Panthers. Right. Um, suddenly we're like, oh, of course, informants are great. We, they use those all yeah, the time. No, I, it's I, perfectly I, normal. I, 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 I mean, are, we, are yeah. we at risk of, of, of accommodating ourselves to a lot of practices we're actually pretty skeptical about right. because they've been used against a crooked president? No, I mean that. that <laughs> speaking, speaking as someone who grew up in a household where we spoke a lot about coin, uh, COINTELPRO. I never say Cointel the acronym. Pro, right? COINTELPRO. Right. COINTELPRO. That's how you say it. Um, yeah. uh, we spoke a lot about that and how you shouldn't trust the government. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's it is it's insane that uh, when confronted with the FBI sending informants to make sure that your campaigns are being spied on. You know, you first have to say this isn't this isn't actually some crazy counterintelligence program from Barack Obama, um, the dread Barack Obama trying to get into your campaign. This is sort of regular law enforcement work. But also, hey, maybe we should think about this kind of stuff. That's not too great. Maybe we should have more limits on federal law enforcement. And I, I do think you're right that uh, uh, ACLU liberals, uh, lefties um, of many stripes, have to walk this line and, and should regularly remind people that the fact that like there's two there's two bad things here right the president of the united states should not be trying to discredit law enforcement or trying to bring it under its heel that is 
contrary to how we do things in this country and needs to be pushed back against. But that does not mean that federal law enforcement is somehow above criticism. And it's just that the criticisms on offer are, you know, bananas and crazy. Um, but there's real criticism to be made of law enforcement practices. I think I see some of this around kind of the general conversation around James Comey, right? Sort of like James Comey, uh, hero of the resistance because he got fired for Trump for for being uh, uh, full of integrity and truth, but also James Comey, who actually violated DOJ protocol in speaking out the way he did during the election. And that that is something that should be criticized, and that is something that should have consequences. Um, d- should it mean, should, should things have played out the way they did? No, but he's not without fault. And I think in, in this sort of the reform the reflexive kind of anti-Trump, therefore um, in, in pro this institution or pro this figure dynamic, it's easy to lose sight of that latter part. I mean, I, I, was, I spent a day or two, yes, that was great. Um, after reading Comey's book, thinking um, about Blue Lives Matter, well, basically trying to remember again which lives matter, because <laughs> I, I was lost because he's a top cop or at least he was an armed law enforcement professional but but comey and the fbi don't matter but blue lives matter i don't know what what are the what a rank and file police think about the attacks on the justice department i'm curious about that and then also yeah the idea that jeff sessions Justice Department, right? Yeah, I would mean, be the thing we had our back. You know, we thought had our back. There was an Axios article today that was like Jeff Sessions today being what's today May thirtieth, um, May thirtieth, two thousand eighteen. There's an article in Axios uh, where the the takeaway was Jeff Sessions is an honorable man, and it's like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where well, are that, we? Well, that's another. This is a related phenomenon: is that anyone who Trump attacks become someone that you you reflexively side with anyone he bullies in any way such as Jeff Jeff Sessions or Rod Rosenstein you know and you have to try to preserve some sense of independent judgment on these people it's very hard because we're creating policy too i mean right. yeah. if you uncritically embrace special prosecutors you know we had special prosecutors during the Clinton administration that were totally out of hand. And for, I'm not even talking about Ken Starr, but every cabinet officer in the Clinton years had a ridiculous special prosecutor. You know, Bruce Babbitt and, and Henry Cisneros, and they spent years and, and collectively hundreds of millions of dollars pursuing what were basically preposterous, politicized cases. And, you know, I think the thing we have to keep in mind, it's hard to keep in mind, is that we're not just investigating Donald Trump, which we have to be doing. We're setting policy for every future president. Um, I, uh, the, on the strange bedfellow subject, I went to a march. They call it a march for truth about Trump Russia. But first, I was like, wait a second. Truth people are 911 truth people and 911 <laughs> truth. Anyway, so I've gotten in the wrong thing to begin with. So we were, I was hearing all these chants about truth for, on Trump Russia. Michael Avenatti, actually, uh, after the truth. We all want the truth. And suddenly the chant turned to USA, USA, <laughs> USA. And I, my fist was in the air when I was like, this is just wrong. Like, this was the pro-Iraq war chant. Like, I've never in my life chanted USA. What has happened? We are like, it's topsy-turvy. 
And sometimes I tell myself, well, you ha we have to adopt certain positions of, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, thinking that James Mattis is incredible, is sane and great and, um, you know, that he'll keep the president in check. Um, and, uh, you know, do you, I think, Jacob, are, remain quite aloof from committing to positions that would establish a precedent. Um, you know, where I was like this close to being like, a military coup is what this country needs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just want to put him out of business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And where, and where are you, Jamal? Any means necessary or, or judicious means? Uh, uh, judicious needs. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, military coups are bad. Really? And, <laughs> um, I need these reminders, you know? <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, I think I think that the prudent way forward as far as dealing with President Trump remains sort of a having a viable and strong political opposition, um, uh, actually investigating sort of the full scope of his background and sort of doing what people can on the grassroots level to sort of strengthen democracy movements. Um, I don't think that. I, I don't think this is a case where uh, dealing with the Trump problem, uh, we're going to do it successfully by abandoning commitments to democracy and um, grassroots participation and and sort of broad capital L liberalism. Uh, I think I think leaning into those things is the only way to succeed here. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Virginia. You know, Jamel and I are, are political journalists by background. Jamel actually still is a political journalist. Uh, you come to us through <laughs> yes, through literary <laughs> criticism and and you know and and uh, culture writing and and close reading of things. But I mean, I'm just uncomfortable at a political reality a rally of any kind. Oh I yeah. Mean, uh, you know, people start shouting slogans that I don't agree with, and I want to either argue with them or leave. I mean, I just don't. I I can't. I I'm all in favor of rallies. I think they're absolutely absolutely crucial to democracy yeah. but but temperamentally or professionally or something i just can't be part of a group yeah you know and i think that i'm not i'm not advocating that but i think you have a different you have a different feeling about well, it. well i had been to the women's march and, and done work with the women's march organizers and um i thought that that enthusiasm would extend to the march for truth I took my chances, um, and it, you know it was a different group. I mean, it, they, you know, once you call something the March for Truth, a lot of conspiracy people show up. Some people were still talking <laughs> about Procter and Gamble and Vietnam and the sign of the beast and stuff. Um, I mean, I like seeing those people from my childhood, but I wasn't quite ready to throw in with them, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if we'd given the improv troupe enough to work with, but that last answer, <laughs> I think we've got it. So, should we welcome these guys back? Thank you. Okay. Come on in, liberals. We got to update what we like and what we don't. <clears throat> so. This is hard. This is hard. I know, I know, I know. Um, help yourself to some coffee. I went with unorganic, because I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, if you remember uh, from our last meeting, uh, Rex Tillerson somehow ended up on the like list. <laughs> I'm still confused about kombucha because I know we like it, but I also think it only has a mother and that's very gender binary. Why can't the kombucha have a mother or a father or a non-gendered parent or as many parents as it wants? That's a good point. I'm gonna go ahead and put kombucha on the don't like list. I think so. So now we have, uh, just to update you, we have Tillerson like, kombucha don't like, and we're liberals. Okay. <laughs> 
can we make the tops of these categories? Like, do you, what do you guys think about this? We get some sort of like a Velcro type action where if tomorrow we come in here and we're like, wait a minute, what was our thing about kombucha? That we can easily just flip the tops because we're wasting a lot of time erasing the columns. I like making it fluid. I like making the whole thing very fluid to acknowledge that we can steadily move along a spectrum from liking to not liking. We know, Jeff, everything is fluid with you. I mean, we can keep the system that I've sort of been pushing for. I mean, right now I have CNN in both the like and dislike. I think that's why. And then I just drew an arrow back and forth frequently. I think that's smart. This coffee is shit. Can we add it to the not like column? It's back on. Okay, we're back on organic. Um, you guys, I got to admit, I'm going through a bit of an identity crisis here. You remember, like, manufacturing consent? All that stuff, we used to be critical of the mainstream media, and all of a sudden we're, I don't know, kind of cheerleading for it. New idea, quadrants. Things we like and don't like, support and don't support. Can we make those quadrants a Venn, like so that they're, so all four cross over in the middle so that maybe we're really targeting something there. We're not sure what the feeling is, but it's a strong feeling. <laughs> See, for me, for me, I would say Chick-fil-A, like, do not support. <laughs> Hold on. Do you guys want to move a little oh, closer? Yeah. You feel very, feel very far away. Yeah. For topic three, which is, you guessed it, Roseanne. You don't have to put on the red um, light. Roseanne. Uh, you know, um, I mean, most many of you might take Ambien to go to sleep, but um, for Roseanne, it seems to produce a different effect. The 2.35 a.m. racist, anti-Semitic, conspiracy-fueled Twitter rant. Right. Ambient um, and Twitter, um, not a good it's a, combination. It's a bad combination. Sort of anything in Twitter seems to be a bad, bad and combination. And Ambient and anything, yeah. not a good combination. Um, <laughs> but um, this uh, was, it was sort of uh, spectacular how quickly it happened. ABC moved very quickly, within hours, to cancel her show, um, which was the uh, number one sort of scripted comedy show on, on American television with a huge hit and the whole phenomenon was being much talked about and much covered because of the way this show was supposed to depict some bit of Trump's America that we were otherwise m missing. Um, and J Jamel, throwing it to you, I mean, do you think Roseanne... Connor was a real was she as a character yeah. on that show was she a was she a Trump American I mean was that was that the vision we should have of, of, of the Trump people um it's a good question uh first I just want to say that I, I we now, I think we now have like a line for like consequences for public racism right that like if you call a black woman an ape <laughs> then you'll lose your tv show yeah R racially charged <laughs> right That's right 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 Anything less than that, we'll see what happens. Maybe you'll become president. I don't know. Um, so I watched the first episode of The New Roseanne, and I think I, I get what sort of they're going for, right? That, like, people contain multitudes. Roseanne might have voted for Trump, but her, uh, her grandchild is black, and uh, her, you know, her, her extended relationships and friends include many kinds of diverse people. Uh, 
I'm sure that in this big, beautiful country of ours, there is someone or there is a group of people who resemble Roseanne Connor in some way, shape, or form. But the idea that this represents like a modal Trump supporter, like a typical person um, who voted for Donald Trump, I just don't think is very accurate, right? Like on a, on a, on a demographic level, the Connors were frankly too working class. Like the typical Trump supporter was actually quite affluent, uh, doing quite well. Um, most white people don't really know any black people, so it stands to reason that your typical Trump supporter doesn't really know or have a personal relationship with, uh, with very many people of color. Um, and this idea that the only thing happening with Trump support was, was simply kind of, I feel forgotten, we feel, we feel left out of the, of the country's uh, life and, and economy and culture, I mean, that there is certainly some of that as well, but there's also sort of the, the raw, uh, aggressive, resentful bigotry. And kind of what's, what's sort of funny about all of this, um, uh, I'd even say funny haha about all of this, it made me laugh, was that Roseanne Barr, the actual Roseanne, has more in common with some of the political forces that produced pl- President Trump than Roseanne Connor. I mean, we should remember always that the reason why Donald Trump had a mass political audience coming into 2015 is that he spent four years arguing that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim who wasn't born in the country, that his entire rise was fueled by insane conspiracy theories. I still remember very clearly Donald Trump suggesting that Ted Cruz's dad murdered JFK. That that happened. I saw it happen. Don't tell me it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then Ted Cruz endorsed him. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So, you know, like Ro- Roseanne, Roseanne Barr in, in, in her behavior, I think it's much more reflective of maybe not all Trump voters, but certainly some of the larger kind of forces uh, gathering in American life and American politics. Uh, that led to Trump than the Connors, which really are sort of a hyper-idealized version of kind of... I mean, take all of those soft-focus profiles of people in like Rust Town, Rust Belt, USA, and turn them into a fictional character, and you have the Connors. And again, while people like that exist, it is wildly misleading to suggest that they're in any way representative. But it, it depicts... I mean, in a way, the the show depicts an idealized world we want in which we have radically disparate political views and we think they think we're crazy and we think they're crazy about politics. But life goes on and people love each other and people have relationships and friendships and neighborships across these the political separation. And in a way, what's so discouraging about this happening is the the takeaway is no, in fact, not. Well, I I think ideally, right? Ideally, ideally, our political conflicts are exist within sort of a certain kind of boundary where, oh, I think we should have higher taxes. You think we should have lower taxes. I think, you know, I don't know, the government should like ban billionaires, you think they're okay. Um, And we can debate about that and we can have uh, dialogue about that. And at the end of the day, we can all kind of hang out and have a beer. But in actual real life political combat, the stakes aren't just sort of fiscal policy or whatever. The stakes are, I think it's okay when cops kill black people and aren't held accountable for it. And you think it's not okay. 
and I don't see what's the what's the big deal, right? I think it's okay uh, that uh, uh, the state of Arkansas can have a single reproductive health clinic providing abortions, and any ever you know if you if you if you are in need of that service, then you're out of luck. That's fine by me. And the other side sees this as like a life or life or death issue, um, a matter of fundamental rights. Like we're we're debating sort of what it means to exist in this society as like a full uh, person capable of achieving their good. And so when you align yourself with a political movement that, for example, says, if you silently protest police brutality, you should get out the country, then I don't think we can have a friendship, right? Like I can't bang with someone who thinks like that. Um, yeah. Maybe I mean maybe that may, maybe that's unfortunate. Like maybe that makes me uh, intolerant. But I, I I don't I just don't think that that the politics we have are are such that the polarization and the division don't come because people can't just get along. They come because these are fundamental issues, fundamental divides, and they represent fundamental vision, fundamentally different visions of what this country is going to look like. I've been doing some sort of informal interviews, exit interviews with people leaving the Fox News fold and who have decided. It's actually been completely fascinating. Someone just struck up a conversation with me in DMs um, and said, uh, direct messages on Twitter. I know you don't use Twitter. Um, that said... Um, those are okay. On, those are safe on Ambia. Those are safe on, yeah, exactly. Well, they're contained, sort of. Um, so, um, but what he said was that he couldn't believe he had been part of the MAGA um, team, and he was a, a big part of it. You know, he was on a, a, a kind of a group thing where they would retweet each other's tweets, and, you know, it was very much influence ops, information ops at, at a grassroots level. Um, he couldn't believe he'd been a part of it. And then he said, Hillary wasn't that bad, was she? Obama wasn't that bad, was she? I actually put a screenshot of this up um, uh, on Twitter. Um, and I said, no, they were not. <laughs> and then we started to talk, and he really did describe a world that seemed less like he had a set of firmly held first principles and more as though he just had a different perceptual field than I did. I mean... <clears throat> The reason, I think that a, a phenomenon of the last few weeks that hasn't been likened enough to the Trump conversation is the Yanny Laurel problem. <laughs> I really, really think that after you've pickled yourself in, um, in Fox News rhetoric, your perceptual field changes. Like, I've read some of the incel groups, too, the involuntary celibates. Who, Jesus. Exterminationist <laughs> misogyny. I don't know why I do this. Exterminationist misogynists, you know, they really, really do want to, you know, murder women. And their discussion, they just over and over and over again reinforce this idea that women are wearing makeup to get men that are above their station. And this crazy field, they're just like, it says Yanny, it says Yanny, it says Yanny. <laughs> Go out there, see Yanny. When I heard Laurel on that, I was just like, oh, I, you know, this thing of I will die alone because anyone who hears Yanny is someone I can't talk to, you know? <laughs> and I think, I do think the Fox News cultists have, are, you know, are hearing the wrong sounds now. And I don't know, I don't think Roseanne bridging those two perceptual fields would be a lot harder than saying, well, we can all agree on, you know, right. we have the same human heart here and we all want, you know, peace and prosperity or whatever from our nation. Um, I, I, you, I just feel like we're not, 
we're not there. And I don't know how to dramatize that on a fiction show. I, I don't think fiction should ignore this topic entirely. I just, uh, I just don't know how to do it. Right. But I mean, here was a show that in some way was taking that on and was, was being widely praised because it seemed to have figured out how to address this, yep. this issue of non-communication. And I, I mean, if separate from, you know, how awful Roseanne is and how unforgivable what she said is, it does seem that we are, it's very hard to cling to a model of forgiveness and persuasion when we're in an environment where really what we, the place we get to is you're, you, you cross the line, you're fired. So do you think, well, the, and my son, by the way, who's 12, basically is on the seventh grade intellectual dark web. Like he just <laughs> always has the uh, contrarian view. Um, thinks, <laughs> I think we called that Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, he, he's interested in Me Too overreach and other things that, you know, preoccupy Jordan Peterson. Thanks, is he a, Ben. Is um, he a spy like you? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. But, um, but it seems that, you might not think the cancellation was a good idea. I mean, it was very, it was very dramatic and exciting to see ABC off with your head, you know, single sanction offense. Um, but um, no, I think they did. I think ABC did the right thing. I, I don't think they really had that much of a choice. But it's the whole thing saddens me. Right. Um, it doesn't. I, I. I. There's no satisfaction in that outcome, other than the slight satisfaction of seeing a big corporation face a ethical question and come down quickly on the right side without equivocation. I actually thought Starbucks after the Philadelphia episode. Yeah. You know, very similar. We now have two examples of big companies engaging in what I would describe as ethical behaviors. I like that. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I but I feel it's a it's a missed opportunity. I don't feel that we can give up on 42 percent of the country or whatever it is today. It's something like that. We're not persuading anybody. Yeah. Um, ultimately, we have to live in the same country. And we um, if our conclusion is they're racist, we can't talk to them. Um, I don't think that produces that that points to a positive outcome. I mean, I, I don't think. So, two things. The first is that I think it's actually okay <laughs> if there are these kind of tensions that exist in our society. They're kind of just there. They've always been there. We've been able to, like, eke out a bit of a functional democracy despite them. I think the problem is less that they exist and more that we don't have, like, a, a, a political structure that's designed for uh, an America where, you know, up until, you know, for, for most of the history, there was sort of like an intra-white people consensus about a lot of things, most of them, that most of that being that black people should remain segregated in a way. That consensus no longer exists and has existed for 50 years. And so we don't have, our politics are still catching up to the fact that this real, the central organizing part of our country no longer exists um, or is degrading or is changing. This is all very good, but a political system essentially designed around privileging the voices of white rural Americans, uh, white Americans, period, is going to lag behind kind of the introduction of at least like nominal racial equality. That's the first thing. I think if, we, if you fix the institutions, you can kind of deal with this problem. That said, there is always value in trying to understand your fellow human being. And I think it is worth you know, using television, using other mediums to explore kind of other parts of America, forgotten parts of America. But I don't think that requires you to kind of like 
whitewash them away, right? Like, it doesn't require you to indulge what was essentially a fantasy about the nature of the political moment that we exist in. Um, there, you can, you, can, you can tell, you can have rich storytelling about white working class families that actually takes them on their own terms and doesn't try to pretend that they are, when they, they, they're something that they're not. Um, and that's sort of my kind of like my critical take on on the new Roseanne was that it really was it, it was a fantasy. And I don't think it really reflected mm. um, uh, I don't think it reflected reality uh, in the way that in the way that even the original Roseanne showed it. Yeah. So you think the the reality showed through the fantasy, but it's interesting that the fantasy and the reality were both Roseanne bars. Right. Her fantasy was of her being a tolerant reactionary Trump supporter and the reality of her being a kind of crazy conspiracy racist anti-Semite, you know, just like a couple ambients late at night, as with Mel Gibson, you know, doesn't take much to unlock those demons. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it also, it has seemed, I think to all of us here and also is revealed in the ascendancy of podcasts still that we do Trump has forced us to find new forms. And the sitcom form may not have been the right one for this, but we could have been, maybe I'm just being optimistic, but there was a meta story here, obviously. You can also see this playing out with Kim and Kanye um, with the president, where the story, the reality show on Twitter, the, the figure of Roseanne Barr in public space, having had this good show before and stood in for sort of a model of the working class and, and now playing this other role. And then ABC coming in, uh, you know, up on its white steed to cancel the show. I mean, that was a pretty interesting spectacle, you know. And, um, and I think, you know, I think my, it's interesting. I mean, Michael Avenatti, the brilliant legal mind that we just have here. Um, <laughs> you know, he, de- he knows that there's like two shows going on and that it might be that in this weird public space, there's a, a, we're telling other stories. I mean, Roseanne Barr seemed to be spending at least as much time on Twitter as she was, uh, you know, acting or doing whatever actors do and, um, and <laughs> cultivating a persona. Um, and, and that persona cultivation, which Trump shows us how to do every day or, sh- you know, has set the tone for, has been part of how we've been responding to it. It just it might be that the sitcom form is the right place for this, but we did get to see a kind of allegory of how an ABC or a Starbucks might react. Um, but I kind of want ABC to, to try again. I mean, with someone other than Roseanne Barr. Like, I would, I, I, I would hate to give up on the idea that we might be able to use humor and a mass culture form yeah. like the sitcom to go to an uncomfortable place where we, where we confront the problem these two Americas have relating to each other. I guess that's my, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a pitch for it, but I'd like to see some other show attempt. I would like to see a network attempt to do what this show brief, very briefly seemed to be doing. Well, what, wait, I have a question for Jamal, because you said this incredibly interesting thing, I think, in a column you wrote in Slate about how, or maybe, sorry, column you wrote in Slate or Twitter? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I write. Um, but it was about, <laughs> it was that the phrase cultural flashpoints is of, often, is almost always code for racism in the U.S. And cultural flashpoints, I mean, in some ways, even by having this conversation about Roseanne, we're sort of codifying that there is this cultural flashpoint that should be exploited or dramatized on ABC, and we're in the midst of a cultural flashpoint that pre-exists our effort to codify it and describe it, 
and that that is like you know just another way of kindling some um, you know serious unrest. Um, I don't know. T like tell me what I, I don't know if. You know, the Russians talk about a cultural, cultural flashpoints in the U.S. too when they were making interventions in our info space. They were always like, find a cultural flashpoint. And that place was always race. Right, right, right. No, I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's, um, it's not a like unique or original observation to note that American racism is, um, is, an, is, is a national security threat, right? There's, there's a reason why this, uh -huh. the, the federal government began um, taking tentative steps towards integrating the military, towards um, uh, kind of establishing non-discrimination as a principle within the federal government. At the same time that the Cold War ramped up, um, there was a recognition that um, this could be exploited by, so. uh, by the Soviet Union. And the Russian Federation happened to exploit the fact that there are these real racial divisions in American society um, uh, very recently. I, you know, I don't think I don't think the, the the fact that these things are exploitable, that things these things are flashpoints, means we should shy away from them. I think it just means we should tackle them honestly and um, uh, without trying to to pretty it up. I mean, to to go back to the idea of a of a sitcom or something, there is something interesting happening in American life right now, where a lot of white Americans are are coming to the realization that they they are raced, right? They have a race. They are white Americans. They exist in this racial space, and they don't really know how to deal with it. Um, and uh, I, I think, in part, some of the, the whole Trump phenomena is like some number of those white Americans basically having like a like a, a breakdown and deciding that the way they're going to deal with it is try to go back to the past and pretend like it didn't happen in the first place. Um, but you can tell stories about that. Uh, you can tell nuanced, strong stories about that that looks at the ugly side of this and looks as well as finds humor in people trying to deal with the fact that, yeah, like if you are a working class white person who lives in one of the nation's many metropolitan areas, your neighbors are probably going to be Latino. You're probably going to, um, uh, you're probably going to know of at least some Muslims. You're going to exist in a much more multicultural context, even if you don't have personal relationships than your parents would have. Um, and that's going to cause anxiety and fear and discomfort. Um, let's, let's, let's look at that in terms of comedy and, and mass culture. Let's not shy away from it, but let's also not pretend like, uh, like it's like there's no dark underbelly to it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think uh, one more time, Steve Waltine, Kate James, Asher Perlman. Chad, Chad. <laughs> we have you found a the very, right pair of Chads. Very, very important job to do. Yep. We have been tasked yes. with bringing America. The diversity, the inclusive feel that represents what they say America is. And there's no better team than these three middle-aged white people to just lock ourselves in a room and just start spitballing. Because I don't know about you guys, but I want to be told about me from people that don't know anything about me. Chad, what you're saying right now, it, it's brilliant, okay? It speaks to me, and I think that's why it's so important that someone of your experience, and Chad's too, can speak to this stuff. So let's pitch some, some shows that would be 
recognizable to everyone in America. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Thanks, Chad. Chad. Um, Chad. Just to piggyback on what Chad was saying, um, <laughs> I have a show that I've been sort of kicking around my brain. I'll just sort of throw it out there. No bad ideas and brainstorming, right? No bad ideas. Okay. So uh, the idea for my show is just called, um, Did You Know You're White? <laughs> And it basically wrestles with something that I'm wrestling with, which is realizing that. So there's that idea. Okay, okay. I think this kind of speaks to everybody. I like this. I really like this. I've got an idea. It's kind of a reboot, um, but I think we could get the right. It's called Chad's Company. And basically, three Chads, okay? One works in finance. One uh, works in uh, is an attorney, okay, and one's a consultant. And they live together, and they have to sort of navigate those differences because they're both. Well, it's because one's 32, one's 29, and one's 33, and so and they're uh, one's from Connecticut, one's from Rhode Island, one's from. Uh, uh, well, from Bristol, right? Now. And so <laughs> they just sort of have to deal with occupying the same space and kind of whoa. I, I like this. I like this. Now I I know I don't want to be the chatty downer here, but I'm going to ask you this question: How do you think our white advertisers are going to respond to that? Gosh, that is a great question. What? What are the my pillow people gonna say? <laughs> I I I think that they will relate to it. I mean, whether you're white or white or you know you grew up white or you, uh, you know if, if your parents are white or you you know like I mean everybody's got a, a white cousin because they're white and so <laughs> I think even if you're white you, you you'll look at these white characters and you'll think yeah like I you know because they. Okay. No, I like that. <laughs> Chad, um, I just have a question, and, and again, no, no, no bad ideas and brainstorming. No bad but ideas. I, I just have to ask, um, what if you're white? I think even if you're white, I mean, you're you're straight, so you're looking at this, <laughs> and you understand sort of the 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 kind of like the universal heteronormative whiteness of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't want to, I mean, I can see this. I see what's happening here. A lot of good ideas are taking shape. I don't want this to then get out there and people say, who was in the room, right? Mm. Right? Why? So the, I'm thinking, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes. We Bring call Shane and Shane. Oh, Shane. Shane, okay. Well, Shane, Shane R. Okay. Shane R, not Shane S. Oh, I was going to say Shane S. Okay, Shane R, maybe, yeah. yeah. We get Shane and maybe like Courtney and like, every fucking Jennifer we can find. <laughs> um, I might pitch getting Megan, and also Megan with an H. Megan with an H and an E-A. <laughs> Just all the Megans. I think we have a, uh, a cracker of a show on our hands. Well done. It is such a pleasure for us doing this show in front of this audience tonight. I really want to thank you all for being here. And I want to thank Steve Waltin, Asher Perlman, Kate James. No longer here, but Michael Avenatti. 
our producer, Jason DeLeon. Faith Smith, who organized the whole evening for us here tonight. And lastly, the Bell House, which is a great place to do these shows. Thank you all. Thank you.